The League of Women Voters and the Recording Library of West Texas present Tall City Elections. Here are your hosts, Abby Wiggum and Trish Spate. Welcome to another episode of Tall City Elections podcast. I'm Abby. With me is Trish, and we have a special guest with us today, Patrick Payton. Can you say hi, Patrick? I can say hi. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So this program is dedicated to providing information about upcoming local elections as we make it accessible to our listeners who are visually impaired. The Tall City Elections 2019 podcast is a collaboration between the Recording Library of West Texas and the League of Women's Voters. We want to thank all of our supporters for helping us make this possible. We have an awesome show ahead of us, so let's go ahead and get started. Pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get that a lot or not at all? You know, because I was at Stonegate for so long and I spent so much time with youth, about the only people, even in my entire tenure as pastor, that called me pastor were um, probably folks in the um, upper ages of life out of respect because I kept telling young people I wanted them to call me just by my name. Okay. And and some people would say, well, don't you want them to respect you? But in today's day and age, I wanted to break down this barrier between pastor and, and the kids so they, didn't, they had a better relationship. So... The long answer to your question is, depends on the generation. That's so funny. Okay. Well, it's weird for me. Like, I didn't even attend your church, but I've always known you as Pastor Peyton. Right. Like, and right. So, exactly. Anyways, it's, yeah. a, it's a different transition. <laughs> well, thank you for being here Absolutely. Today. We really it's an honor to be here. I'm uh, going to keep encouraging you guys to go live. Yeah, one day. Mm. One day. Trish might, <laughs> Trish might do that one day. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just start off with the basics? Tell us a little bit about who you are, Mm -hmm. your upbringing, and um, and then why you're running. Yeah, well, I'm not a native Texan, so that might eliminate me from the running for some people. I'm actually from Oklahoma, which on the day that we're recording this, the biggest day in Oklahoma and Texas history is this Saturday, the OU-Texas game. So (laughs) anyways, born and raised in Oklahoma. I was in business in Oklahoma. That's the condensed version of it. I was in the restaurant supply business, a food broker, and different things like that through a series of sort of what I would call transformational events in my life and my wife. We left our business career, sold everything, went away for a new track in life that ended us here in Midland. We'd never heard of Midland, Odessa, and we they what? flew us. Yeah, I know. We had never even heard of Friday Night Lights, and they flew us in here at night. That's a true story. All of this is a true story. They did story. that on purpose. They did that know? on purpose. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's back in 90. On a Friday night. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually 98 is when they flew us in, and so uh, nothing was happening here in Midland. Oil was $9 a barrel the day we moved here. So we moved here, like you said, I think the church you grew up in was First Baptist, Mm -hmm. and First Baptist was starting a church in Northwest Midland, where the only thing in Northwest Midland was Scarborough Elementary, C.J. Kelly Park, and Lowe's, maybe Abel Junior High. There was nothing else out there. And the idea was, well, let's just see if we can start a church in Northwest Midland. And so we started the church, began in August of 99. I retired from Stonegate this past year, 2018. Everything was going great, but I'd made a commitment to leave the church before they asked me to and leave before they wanted me to. In my history of growing up in uh, churches, pastors are a lot like politicians. They stay too long, Uh and we didn't want to do that, and Midland was our home. We didn't have another plan. I did not plan on running for mayor. There is a podcast circulating where I say I'm not going to run for mayor. So that's uh, <laughs> my my youngest son told me if he was running against me, he'd run that podcast every day. That's funny. <laughs> so anyways, we um, 
that was the journey. And then we, I started a new company that I, I travel and consult companies and leadership teams in various companies. I think that the net worth of the companies I'm consulting right now is right under $3 billion. And so I just got back in from Oklahoma City last night from consulting up there. A lot of people started calling me about five months ago that uh, I've known over the years saying, would you consider running for mayor? My short answer was no. And then my wife and I, as you would expect me to say, prayed about it, thought about it, consulted a lot of people, and made the step. And on July 10th of this past summer, we made the announcement, and here we go. And it's hard to believe it's October 9th, and we're less than a month away. Wow, that's crazy. That's the long story. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing. So your company, it's it's about leadership. You mm-hmm. can you consult companies about leadership. Yeah. So that's a big part of your campaign, right. too, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, the company is called the Peyton Group, really creative. And, um, <laughs> we, um, and so this whole idea of leadership has just been, you know, when we started Stonegate, I didn't have any experience in the church. Um, I've never actually had a career where I had any experience, none whatsoever, which I'm beginning to find out is oftentimes not a good thing. But, you know, for some it is. And so what I do is I've spent my time over the last 20 years, really the last 30, helping people discover really how they can become better. And I think the same thing is true here in a city like Midland, especially in the day and age in which we live. You know, your your listeners are probably made up of people who have seen and experienced more change in Midland uh, you know, just in my 20 years here, my goodness. I mean, when I moved here, no one even drove on the loop. You know, I was like, why is there a loop? And now you're like, could we get another loop? Could we get like an outer loop and <laughs> all this? Mm-hmm. And and so, but I've found in Midland especially, and First Baptist and Stonegate's experience helped me to see this. There are a lot of people who want to see even greater things happen. And I don't mean greater things like let's build 85-story skyscrapers they just think there's more we could do if we just tried more and experimented more and and didn't get stuck in some of our old ways of thinking that that's just not for Midland. And there's a lot of young people moving here. The average age now is like 32 or 33 here in Midland. So I, I believe leadership is not about trying to gain a position, but trying to help other people become more of what they're designed and called and gifted to be. And I think the same is true for a city. So I just like to bring that leadership to City Hall and see if we can push it a little bit. That's awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I have a question with your background in church leadership mm-hmm. and and now you're consulting businesses. Mm-hmm. They're obviously, I'm assuming some of them are non-Christian organizations. None of them are churches. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that look like? Like what can Midlanders expect from you, specifically people who may not be of mm-hmm. the Christian faith. Right. Um, they might be a little bit hesitant or resistant mm-hmm. to the idea of, oh, well, there's a pastor going to run the city. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, if, what if my values don't line up with his? Mm-hmm. And how are you going to develop me or the leadership? Mm-hmm. Um, to lead everyone. Yeah, to yeah. lead yeah, everyone. Yeah, to lead everyone. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great question. And I always hate it when people say that's a great question because it always makes me think they don't know have an answer. But it is a great it's question. A, it's, it is a good question. I like, I like it when people say it's a good question. Yeah, it's stalling. No, it it really is a good question. I think that given the electric atmosphere in our country today, with all the elevated debates about social issues and moral issues and things like that, a lot of times what we've done is we have disrespected people's values and disrespected their opinions. And I know of no institution that's done that worse than the local church. Uh, In my time as a pastor, 
you know, we dealt with issues like same-sex marriage. We dealt with issues where we totally disagreed with people. But at the same time, what we found out was, you know what? People are people are people, and we're called to love them, not to fight them. And a lot of times we got pushback as a church because we didn't get in fights with people over these moral stances. If they wanted to engage us in what we believed, we would tell them, but we would listen to what they believed. And as a matter, as a, as a story to help you see how I work through this, I went to Khartoum, uh, Sudan uh, about 10 years ago. It might've been more than that. It was just the other day. When you get older, you're going to realize everything was just the other day. <laughs> and I sat down with the Muslim leadership of a dominant Muslim country, and we talked about our shared values so that we could be, begin to negotiate towards peace, possibly. And we knew, sitting around the table, we fundamentally disagreed about our core religious convictions. But those were a basis for how we were going to live individually. But we were sitting around a table to figure out what our shared values were for civilization around us. And so what I do, and even when I was in the church, and what I, what I do with these companies I work with, I'm always asking these companies, what are your governing values? As a matter of fact, every company I deal with, they always hire me for one specific issue, but I always have the first couple of meetings to ask them, what are your governing values? And they go, what do you mean, what are our governing values? I'm like, well, you can't say truth and you can't say integrity because the opposite of those I don't think you want to be. So you're going to think a little bit harder about that. And you find out that governing values really dictate what you do as a company and how you do what you do as a company. And when I look at the city, I don't see governing values. I, I don't see this is what we stand for. This is how we're going to do business. This is a simple thing like this is how we're going to treat people. A simple thing. We're going to work on win-win situations between citizens and the government. So, again, I'm giving long answers, but my principles are informed by my faith, but I'm not going to demand and never have demanded. Well, I'll take that back. When I was young and arrogant, I would demand people think like me. But now all I'm trying to do, I'm 52 years old and after 30 years of leadership in the public and private sector, when I sit down across from people, what I'm trying to find out is what are the things we agree on principally? Because we're usually trying to solve a particular problem. And so as long as we're principle-driven, value-driven people, we can honor and respect each other's religious differences, which was the root of the question, and we can get past that to solving issues that are dealing with the city. Because my, my goal is not to make Midland um, my church. Right, it's to right. become a city that's great for people to do church, but not for it to be my church. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so what are you hearing from the like the people who asked you to run mm -hmm. um, and the people that you're talking to? What what do you think that, what are you hearing they value? Yeah. One thing that I'm hearing them value is communication. They do not feel like there's adequate communication coming out of City Hall. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we said early on we'd try to just, a simple thing, move City Council meetings to 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon because they're at 10 o'clock today in the day. Yesterday was 10 o'clock. And, you know, not everybody gets to leave work if they want to go be a part of that, take vacation time. And so we've, we've heard this communication issue. We honestly hear a lot about fiscal responsibility. We hear that a lot. And it ties back into communication because people don't feel like they're being told what's going to happen with money. They feel like they're being told what has happened with money. Mm. It's kind of the reverse. And, and we hear sometimes the city trying to say they're running it like a business, but most businesses have to go to investors to tell them what they're going to spend and how they're going to spend it and get approval. Then they go spend it, not reverse. So we're, mm -hmm. the, the answer to your question keeps revolving back to this sense of communication. 
I hear a lot. I hear a story a week from people trying to do business in Midland, developers, home builders, contractors who are literally just tired. They are fed up with how hard it is to get things done. seems like there's a rule around every corner. There's something that comes up. And to the point where if I'm sitting across the table from a developer, a builder, a home builder, I can almost tell you what they're going to say before we get two seconds into the conversation. So I sometimes just say, I already know what you're going to say. And um, so those are a couple of things we're hearing. I, I hear very little, quite frankly, about roads, which is kind of funny because everybody says, all the surveys say roads are the most important thing. But I think our li- your listeners and the si- people in the city get the fact that roads are going to take time. You just have to keep working on it. Well, on roads, I am hearing this. People are pretty upset that the neighborhood that's getting the most repaving done is is uh, Green Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little hard for me to figure out, you know. And so, uh, anyways, it's the communication issue. It's the fiscal responsibility issue, and it all circles back again to communication. We mentioned roads, so jump off from that point. <laughs> um, a lot of our listeners use public transportation. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably be the only people who are going to ask you <laughs> your thoughts on the state of Easy Rider and public transportation in general. And we also have county transportation through tracks. But what we hear a lot is that those are inefficient services. Mm-hmm. Um, wait times for paratransit, especially if you're going to go to dialysis, you have to make your appointment to get your ride and then you're going to you're going to end up waiting and then you're going to wait when you're finished because they're just overwhelmed. And not only that, but the stops for easy riders. Our listeners who use public transportation are left vulnerable because there's not adequate seating or yeah. protection and so whether it is sometimes they're vulnerable to people, other people or weather conditions, yeah. stuff like that. And I literally got out of my truck the other day cuz a lady was waiting and it was 900 degrees outside, mm-hmm. and yeah, and I had an umbrella in my truck, and I just mm-hmm. pulled over, and I was like, hey, why don't you just take this umbrella? And she was like, thanks, because she was pouring sweat. You right. know, yeah. so. It's not an ideal situation, and I feel like that some of us long-term Midlanders think that maybe there was insufficient planning done <laughs> for public transportation mm-hmm. in Midland, so... Do we win? Most unique question anybody's asked you about? (laughs) Actually, I love the question. And the reason I love the question is because, so I'll say it this way. I don't think it's a great question. I think it's a great paradigm. And and seriously, when when we announced on July 10th, the first part of my announcement speech was, I think it's time for us to start shifting paradigms. And for those of us who are, I would say, if you've been in Midland as long as I have or longer, you, you have to just not be paying attention to know that there, there is a press against our old paradigms of who we are. And public transportation is going to be a hard press. So first statement, I, I've tried not to make any promises in my campaign, but I think I can make this promise. In a three-year term, there will be no significant changes made in public transportation. I would suggest that it would take a minimum six to nine years, which would be three terms. And I've already made the commitment I would not want to be a three-term mayor. So this whole public transportation thing, quite frankly, is going to take a radical shift in thinking of who we are. 
My, my son lived in San Francisco for quite some time. I know that that's uh, not a good city for a lot of people, but we've also been in New York a lot. We've traveled a lot, you know, when you, and I know people are already probably saying, we're not going to be somebody else. Well, the fact of the matter is, as a city, we've already tipped, you know, the proverbial tipping point. We've tipped the point where we're going to, we're no longer going to become some ghost town anymore. We have tipped that. I think the number is really about 150,000 to where a metropolitan area becomes even more self-sustaining than just what we've been in the past. But this, I was just thinking the other day, and I said this to my wife, I said, what do you think? I know people who are listening to this, some of them are going to come out of their seats. I thought, what, what would it be like for us to literally have rail all the way around the city? But the reality is, you know, as I do, you guys know, as I do living here in Midland, when those kind of things, you know what it takes to pay for those kind of things. And so it's going to take a long-term, highly invested, possibly state-partnered program for us to get to a place where you have some type of really good public transportation that's going to connect Midland and Odessa and that's going to get people looped around the city or straight through the heart of the city. And it doesn't take someone with great powers of observation to look at our, I'll just call it our busing system and realize it's, um, it's a good effort. But it's it's and it's all we got. So the depressing answer to your question is, I really think it's a massive, massive issue that's going to show up. If and especially now that we have downtown, now that we have where the sports complex and entertainment place is, you have these sectors of the city where people are going to be shuttling and shuffling back and forth, and it might even be safer in some regards because it's so crazy to drive around here. So my answer is. Not in three years, not in six years, but it might be something that thinking out loud with you, we might need to appoint like a commission towards or something so that they could begin to think through what would be the long-term ramifications of this. Right. Yeah. I appreciate the honesty, the bluntness of the answer. (laughs) They're going to be listening to this Mm -hmm. and they don't want false promises at all. Yeah. So you mentioned possibly starting a commissioner Mm -hmm. or commission for this. How, what can we do? What would your advice be? Like, what can we do? How mm-hmm. can we advocate for our people? <laughs> yeah. So to say, like during this time, because yeah. changes aren't going to happen within the decade even, but you're, if you were elected, you would be the mayor and mm-hmm. they would still be looking to your leadership. What can we do practically? Well, push would be one. Remember this conversation we had and Make the phone. If I'm the mayor, you you make the phone call. You send an email and say, "Hey, what do you think about? Let's just stay on that topic of transportation. What do you think about some type of transportation commission?" I would encourage you, if transportation is just we're staying on that example, I would make sure it wasn't just a Midland issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this this issue of Midland and Odessa is going to knock our doors down probably within the next ten years, if not sooner. I mean, yeah. since 2015. I can remember driving between Midland and Odessa, and the only thing there was an airport and the Wagner Noel, maybe. And now it's ridiculous. And you can even tell there's very little planning and foresight going into that combination. So even though I know that, you know, they have one brand of football and we have another, you know, whatever that means, any type of commission for transportation needs to be a Permian. Well, don't use that word because then everybody thinks it's Odessa. It needs to be a Midland-Odessa and there is Motran that's already out there that we can work on those things. So the answer to your question is, if, that, if it's that big of an issue, keep advocating for it. 
don't create another 501c3. <laughs> um, Midland already has one for every citizen. <laughs> so, yeah. and then we could begin to work towards, okay, a long-term commission and then be ready for pushback because any type of commission that's going to address an issue like public transportation that's going to cost a lot of money is going to get hardcore pushback. Another issue important to our listeners, there's been talk about a new or redoing a senior center. Mm-hmm. you have any thoughts about that? Well, I've heard a lot of that conversation come up, quite frankly, in the midst of kind of campaigning season. An election year? Yeah. Really? Talk about <laughs> Yeah. So I'm not going to sit here and say I think that's a great idea because it's a hot topic for senior voters that are the super voters. I'm a little concerned about the city making senior living their priority rather than doing a better job of working with private companies that can really probably even do it better. But there may have to be some subsidies because of the expense. But what I'm finding is every time the city gets involved in something that people say you should do this as a city, they rarely do it well after they do what they were told they should do. But there, when I travel the country, which is one of the things that's helped me gain some perspective, and you see what other cities are doing related to senior care, related to senior facilities. One of my first customers when I was in food sales was a senior village. And there's ways to connect with people around the country that are doing better jobs than we're doing of just, well, let's put a senior center over here on this land that nobody wants. And and the, the other problem you have with our senior center and senior care is we still have that transportation issue as well. And so those compound on each other. And I'm not going to sit here and say to you, you know what, what I'm going to do as mayor is we're going to, we're going to build another senior center. I watched in the city council this year, the senior center become an issue. And quite frankly, the reason the senior center center has become an issue is because the 55 and older and 65 and older crowd vote the most. And so it's pandering to that crowd in an election season. And I have a problem with pandering. I understand. Talking about just the quality of life and senior care and senior housing is mm-hmm. an issue as well. We know that affordable housing for civil servants, mm-hmm. I believe there was an editorial in the Midland newspaper last week about the city shouldn't be in the housing business. What do you think about these, the, like the current plan with Hillcrest um, mm-hmm. Village and, and um, what are we going to, if we need more police officers and then we have to have a place for them to live and right. do you think the city should be in the housing business? Well, once the city gets in the housing business, the question becomes, is there ever a place for them to get out of the housing business? And so one of the ways the city can get out of the housing business is what we talked about earlier when I keep talking to builders and developers and we say, hey, you guys quit making it so hard for people to come here and build the things that they're asking to build. Pay attention. You know, some of the most creative housing options you can find in places. I know people don't love Austin, but you can, you know, there's creative options that are out there. If we will allow people to develop here well, we, we also have to realize these conversations we're having about workforce housing and workforce housing shortages. We're having these quest, these conversations in look at the time frame. So about 2015, Midland started getting pretty much run over 
as far as the oil and gas industry. Yeah, that's when the man camp. And everything yeah. starts blowing up. Well, we can remember, you lived here long enough. You've I don't know how long you've lived here. A long time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can remember the first time you said, am I really sitting through this light twice? I mean, that's not a joke. <laughs> that's the reality of it. And so if you think about Midland in the last 20 years, and I'm not avoiding your question. I'm trying to okay. give perspective to these questions that people are asking. The questions they're wanting answers to are short-sighted perspectives because since 2000, we have not consistently taken care of ourselves as a city. In other words, when the city is booming, we're, we build like crazy. We try to figure out what we can do. When the industry sort of craters, we stop everything. The reality is when the industry is slow is when we as a city should be doing the most we can do to build infrastructure and do things because that's when labor is the cheapest, goods are the cheapest, products are the cheapest. But we didn't do that. We would we planned in booms and we stopped in busts. Then we get here in 2015, 16, and our housing market gets literally overrun. But because we haven't been planning for a long, long time, then we find ourselves in a crisis. And if you think in crisis mindset, in the middle of a crisis, you will not fix the issues well. So we're not going to even fix workforce housing in the next two years or three years. But what we can fix is putting our city on a growth trajectory where, for instance, I'm a big person on if you can measure it, you can probably achieve it. So do you grow housing by 3% annually, and then you grow 3% the next year? And we have to get on a consistent growth track, or because what people default to is the answer of, well, the city government's going to have to do that. Well, once the city government does that, it costs taxpayer money. And then I bet your listeners are not sitting here listening going, I can't wait till you raise my property taxes. I bet they're they're so excited about their property valuations as they are right now. So it all takes revenue. And so one of the things I suggested, let's go back to the values question, was if we value firefighters and police officers, I said, well, let's just say this. Let's say that no firefighter or police officer's starting salary will be the highest paid officers in the state, I think, are Plano, and starting pays like $70,000. And I said, well, let's just make sure we're within 5% of that. So we're always within 5% of the highest paid police or fire department personnel in the city, well, or in the state. What that does for us is it dictates part of the budget because of the values. We're not guessing. We're not spitballing this thing. And so even when I talk to police officers and firefighters and say, what do you want? They're not asking me to build them homes they're asking me to pay them more fairly so they can go out and do those things. Yeah. And then once you allow the industry to catch up and once you pay people the right the right wage, then the free market begins to take care of some housing issues. If the city gets in the housing business and the subsidized housing business, it's not very far to get to where a New York, inner city Chicago or San Francisco is. Mm -hmm. And it'll falsely elevate prices or depress them. Thank you. Let's switch topics just a little bit, if that's okay. Go wherever you want to go. Awesome. <laughs> Public safety. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a big deal right now. It's on people's minds. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that, just in general? Yeah, so just talked about the pay. You know, I've sat across the table from police officers and firefighters. Almost to a person, they tell me, you know, I didn't get in this to get rich. They they all say that. And so, but we can't use that as an excuse to keep them in the poorhouse. And so I think we have to be competitive with our pay. but. The other thing is, is I think we have to continue to communicate to these individuals how much we're for them. And I'll just tell you a brief story about that. About three weeks ago, gosh, about four weeks ago now, I'm sitting in a meeting. It's at First Baptist, actually. It was a, a, a banquet 
and a guy walks in that I know from Colorado Springs, and he is a philanthropist. He he helps high net worth people do stuff with their money. So he's I'm not one of his customers. And so we, uh, I said, what are you doing here, Al? And he says, well, I actually just had a, a, a demo with your police department because we represent a company that produces the newest and greatest bulletproof vests and helmets and that stops high, high-powered rifle bullets. And I'm not a gun guy, so I don't even know the right words. So I mean, I don't mean like, I just don't hunt. I don't do all that stuff. And so, cause it's a dangerous statement around here. Yeah. Cause I, I'm totally for your it's second okay. amendment, but anyways. No, it's okay. Yeah. And so, um. There's plenty of other people like that around here too. It's <laughs> sort of a stereotype that I don't think it's true, but go ahead. Well, okay, good. So I asked my friend, I said, so you're, you're trying to put the latest and greatest life-saving bulletproof vests on our police officers, right? He goes, yes. And I said, well, how much is that going to cost? He said $350,000. And I said, so you're, you now have the approval of the police department, but the police department is going to have to raise money to get those vests? And he goes, yeah. So I called the police chief, talked to the police chief about it, and um, or we texted back and forth. I said, well, I've been reading in the paper how the city has like record sales tax revenue and record revenues, you know, the proverbial pot of gold in the basement of the city hall. I know that's not true, but you, you keep reading about record revenue, and I'm thinking... Like I've heard record revenue to the tune of millions, not a couple right. thousand. So if police and fire are one of only about three things the city really is supposed to take care of, and we already see that they're undermanned and underprotected. So I just got on our Facebook page, made a video and said, okay, folks, we're going to start raising money for uh, our police officers to have these vests. And and this with, was that Shield? Yeah, six, Shield 616. Yeah. And so we ended up with nearly... Uh, uh, $10,000 that first came in. Now Ally Outdoors has decided to do a concert. I think they've committed to about $180,000 towards it. So my, my point is, I'm kind of, I'm still kind of baffled as to why I'm doing this. Right. Like I'm wondering, at what point at the city level do you hear that a candidate for mayor is raising money for your police officers and you don't just say, hey, time out, we'll, we'll take care of this. And this just goes to... This idea of, well, if you see some creative options, then what's your priority? What's the value? And I, I don't even see how it's a win-lose. It's a win-win no matter what you do. And so, anyways, we're going to get these vests on these police officers. Hopefully, it'll move over into Odessa. But what you're going to find is, and probably the staff members at Stonegate Fellowship complained about this more than anything, is I'm constantly listening and looking for ways and new things that people are doing. Because my staff would be like, could you just let us do this for a little bit before you think of a new idea? And But that's fine. You know, I heard we had a parking problem at the airport. Just I know we're on safety, but and I was in Tulsa and I saw this company called Fine Airport Parking. And I'd seen them since the 80s when they started. And I knew we had a parking problem. All you have to do is go to the airport and, you know, you got to park in Odessa. Oh, yeah, lots are full. Pardon? Oh, the it's lots terrible. Are totally it's terrible. Full. And, Premier's even full sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I emailed Fine Airport Company. I didn't think they'd call me back, sure enough, right back. And they said, short story, the guy said, we have one of our management team who's from Big Spring. And he said, and they're located in Tulsa. And he said, he said, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Midland. We'd love to come down there and look at your place. I communicate that to the city. They're like, no, nah, we're already going to pave it. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So on the safety and yeah. security, I think our fire department, in my discussions with the chief, seem to be in a pretty good place. Their issues are a little different than the police force as far as housing and different. There's still an issue, but when you're looking at the fire department, 
not that this is the best thing, but we have we have firefighters that are commuting from Lubbock and San Angelo and other places. But when you're four days on, four days off, that's a different game than what our police officers are facing. And uh, and to a to a, I was going to say man, but it's men and women. To a person on the police force, every one of the individual officers who have spoken to me have said this. They have never said, "Could you get us more money? Could you get us more protection?" They have simply said this: "Would you just show us you care?" Hmm. And, and so that's, I'll let people determine, I'll define that however they think they should define it. But, um, I think the question we started with about what kind of leadership they could expect, if I see an answer to an opportunity, I'm going to pretty well just try to get after it until somebody tells me you just cannot do that, which then I'm going to probably say, well, let's see if we can. Another current topic that I hear a lot because I'm in this building and I work, we're right above where Keep Midland Beautiful is Mm -hmm. housed. So we we were talking about the trend of we've got all these younger people coming into town. They're used to, and I have college-age kids, you do too, yeah. that they're used to robust recycling mm-hmm. wherever they are. And water, obviously. But mostly it's the trash issue. So they're dissatisfied yeah. with the way that Midland handles recycling. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, yes. Let's use the word we used about transportation. It is a another paradigm challenge, and I'm not. That sounds like okay. That's your that's your stump speech. Here you go. But quite frankly, it is because I don't think the Midland I have. I was going to say grown up in, but you know the Midland the that Midland I, I have the Midland you grew up in <laughs> probably by and large would say recycling was a joke. Wouldn't even think twice about it. You're going to make me put plastic in one container and make me put my newspapers in another. you got to be kidding. This is a free country. I can do whatever I want to do with my trash. You nailed it. Yep. Well, and, and so, and, and it's not that I don't understand that perspective. I get it. But at the same time, then I'm walking downtown the other day. The other day, remember, it could be within the last six months. And a young couple are walking across the street in front of me. When I say young, your generation. And she unwraps a piece of gum and throws the wrapper on the street. And so I just walked behind them. You know, I didn't yell at them and say, pick up your trash. I just went and picked up their trash. So when I look at our city and I hear this young generation saying, why aren't we, and I don't even think they're rabid environmentalists. I think they just want the place to be clean and nice. And they do see the need to recycle in many ways and not be so abusive of of our blessings that we have. It's going to take, I hate to even say this, it's going to take the younger generation pushing that issue, and then being willing to have the hard conversations of what it's going to long-term cost for us to do those things. We're going to have to have some long, hard conversations here in Midland about what generations are passionate about, what it's going to cost, and how we're going to get there. Because our mantra has always been we want to be the lowest taxed county and city in the state. That's a that's a honorable mantra, but once you say that you want to be the cheapest place tax-wise means you're going to have some problems when you have to answer the question of what kind of place you want to live. And so all the listeners, that they probably just said this to themselves. Oh, that's code for I want to raise your taxes. Well, let's remind you of something the state legislature did that is the gift to you as taxpayers. Because in the last legislative session uh, in Austin, they didn't do much, but they did put this 3.5% cap on property taxes. So I hope your listeners understand what that means, that as a city council, we cannot raise your property taxes more than 3.5%. 
without a vote of the people. I actually think, please don't come through your radio because this is recorded. It's not live. I actually think that city councils ought to consider raising taxes 3.6% every year. And here's why. It forces them to present a plan to the citizens that the citizens have to vote on and approve and say, we see your plan. We see the viability of that plan and we want to get behind it. Now, that was a complete hypothetical situation, but I'm telling you, the recycling issue, it's going to be a fundamental shift in the way we think about ourselves for us to, as a mayor and a city council, to say, we're, we, we consider that money to be money we need to spend. But that's, remember the keep police officers 5% within the highest paid? Well, do we value taking care of the place we live as far as trash and cleanliness? That's going to determine what we do with the budget. And right now, a previous generation, that's not a high priority. You just need to pick up after yourself. Okay, well, you're going to get challenged on that. Because I, I was I visited with Keep Midland Beautiful. My family and I kept a two blocks beautiful Saturday morning. You know, and I hear them. And we lived in Kentucky for a while, and you had three bins. Like I said, my son lived in San Francisco. I think they have 10 bins for every house. It's kind of crazy in San Francisco. But, well, it is an island. Yes. <laughs> there's, not, there's not like it's, a landfill right It, it is crazy. Ocean. <laughs> but it's... um. I'll say it for the third time in answer to that question. It is going to have to be a thought shift. Yeah. Fair? I think that, yeah, I think that, that the tradition in Midland about recycling has been it's optional. And, um, mm-hmm. and that it's optional and I don't want to pay for it. Well, the other thing yeah. it is, quite frankly, to be crass about it, people who promote, this is a very general term, so let me finish it. People who usually promote recycling tend to be perceived as people who hate the oil and gas industry. And so since the oil and gas industry was was what allows us to have a living around here, we pit those two things against each other rather than saying, well, time out, time out. It's not either or, it's both and. And so let's kind of do this together. So can we go on a quick rabbit trail real quick? Sure. So you mentioned having difficult conversations between mm-hmm. generations. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give me mm-hmm. being in my generation? Like how would I go about pushing a conversation, having critical conversations with an older generation? Yeah. And then but then also like what is it that you're telling people of your generation or older generations about talking with us? Yeah. First, I think it goes back to honor. I think that generations tend to each assume they are right and the other one is wrong, rather than taking time to understand the other generation's perspective and world they're living in and have lived in. And it goes back to an old uh, Stephen Covey uh, mantra of seek first to understand before you're understood. And that's a hard conversation. It, let me give you an example. In the church world, when we started Stonegate Fellowship, you know, we decided hospitality was going to be a big deal because our research had told us people didn't think churches were hospitable, which was pretty true. If you go to a church, sometimes you're like, I don't think they want me here. And so we did the whole donuts thing, the whole coffee thing. And then we told people they could wear whatever they wanted to to church. Well, there were a previous generation who thought, now that is not right. And, you know, we were meeting in a gym and people, guys would come in with their hats on. And I had some, let's call them old schoolers who were like, this is not going to go down. And I didn't just look at these, these individuals and say, why are you so conservative and out of your mind? I sat down and said, I totally understand where you're coming from. Now let me 
talk to you about where we're coming from, and maybe we can find a place where we can have this discussion and see where we can move forward together. In the end, most of those conversations worked out really well. But I think it's vitally important that when I'm speaking to your generation, for instance, I do this thing in my leadership training where I talk about people's five core needs, the, the primary one being security, who can I trust, followed by identity, who am I, followed by belonging, who wants me. And then the two least important ones are purpose, what am I here for, and competence, what do I do best? And I make an argument, I spoke at a big human resources conference uh, a couple months ago. I make the argument that the older generation, let's say World War II, Korea, Vietnam, built their lives on what they do. So they flipped this pyramid. The and competence. They, yeah, competence. And is this is what I do. This is the value of who I am. And they really weren't worried about who they could trust. They were they they defined who they were by they what trust they did. Anybody. Yeah, they defined who they were by what they did. And after they worked fifty years somewhere, they got a watch and they said, "That's life." Mm-hmm. So your generation that we ridicule, calling them the millennials, I actually think because I believe that we can only operate outside of our mind so long before we we have to change and get back to what we're supposed to be. I think your generation has. They don't even know they're doing this. I think they have flipped the pyramid and they have said, time out. You're first going to show me I can trust you. Then you're going to you're going to show me you want me and and then I'll discover who I am. Then we'll worry about what I do well because your generation, unlike a previous generation, if you're told, I don't know how to do something, you'll say, well, I'll figure it out. I'll go find a YouTube video. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out before you do. I don't even need a college education. I'll figure it out. Competence is not your issue. Everything's easy to you guys because you're just like, I'll figure it out. And so you're flipping the script. And that's that's another paradigm shift because I, I've realized it in the corporate world where I tell these people I'm tr- coaching, I say, do you even realize the way younger people are thinking that they're beginning with they don't even trust you. And I think that's what's happening in our race right now as mayor. There's young people who have, quite frankly, grown up listening to me teach them who are like, so can I trust you to do this? Which is a pretty heavy burden to bear that you're like, well, I'm going to give it my best shot. And so all of that to say, even if you think about having conversations with the older generation, remember, they think first and foremost from what they do defining who they are, whereas your generation, they're like, I'll live in a container. I want to go see the world. Do you do you care about me? Can I trust you? And those are different perspectives to come to a conversation with. And so when when we talk about hard issues, it, it just takes time to see where the other person's coming from. And that's that's a new way to do things sometimes. Did I answer your question? Yeah, that was awesome. Thank yeah. you. We're the uh, we're I'm 49. We're the Gen Xers. Yeah. We're the bridge. Yeah. Because we're the baby boomers are our parents. Right. Or older siblings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then our kids are millennials yeah. or whatever they are now. What is the one below millennial? But yeah, we're working I, with 30-year-olds and then we still are working with people who are in their 60s and there's not as many of us. Mm-hmm. I think if there here's a little plug for generation X, if there was more Xers, I think there would be better communication mm-hmm. because there would be more bridges. Yeah, I, I've never even, I think I've heard that word, like the bridge generation, but it makes really sense to me because I see it, quite frankly, when I go into these companies more There's than anybody else. There's not very else. many of us. There's not. And I look at them mm-hmm. and I go, they're like, it's all these guys in the boardroom that are 50 and 60 years old. And privately, they'll say to me, 
my younger workers are driving me crazy. And I'll say, well, you're driving them crazy too. Yeah. And, and I see it. Mm -hmm. And so, and I see the sadness in, in the generation before us, when I look at retired folk and I'm like, you gave all that for that. And then I see the younger generation and my challenge to them oftentimes is, you know, you still got to work hard sometimes. And the other generation, I have to tell them, you know, you still need to rest. You need to relax. It's not a mark of maturity that you left unspent vacation on the table, right? Right. And where your generation is like, I need PTO and uh, and I need to work from home. That's interesting. <laughs> that circles back to what do you value? Yeah, that's and right. They do. The, the values are different, I think, in general, generationally. Back to city council. <laughs> but all that had to do with city council. Because no, it does. I think it is, really does. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of the time, and it is nice to see some younger people on the, who are running mm -hmm. District 4, District 3, yeah. because they do bring a different perspective yeah. than the traditional one. It will be important for them, if the young ones are elected, to slow down long enough mm -hmm. to understand the perspective they think they want to change. Because... They'll get themselves in trouble in a hurry if they don't understand before they try to legislate. Make sense? Cool. You didn't talk about education. Did you want to talk yeah, about you, education? You had a question about that, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask what your opinion is on the school bond. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have any thoughts about educational success in Midland? Uh, how long are we going to keep this to? <clears throat> So I've been involved with public ed now for almost 10 years. When it, It's probably a little less than that, actually. I have a personal—this goes back to your first question about what can they expect of a pastor. I grew up going to a Christian school, and uh, I watched it destroy our church, and I watched it destroy a lot of people's lives, and thats I'm just going to leave it at that. So when I became a pastor, I told the elders of our church, I said, I will never support Stonegate starting a school. Um, I even stood on stage one time and said, the day you start a school is the day I resign. And the reason I said that is because I believed back in the 80s, for those of us who walked through the 80s, the church in general demonized public education and walked away from it. And when I say walked away from it, walked away from it, started, I don't, I don't mind starting private schools, but at the same time, I, I was very upset that my evangelical friends would tell me they'd go spend money in China and in Africa and, and all these countries that would not change, but they walked away from public education. I felt like we abandoned it. And we would even, if you worked for the public school system, then you must be evil. And it's a little bit hyperbole, but not much. So when I got here, I'd made a decision that I told our youth pastor. I said, Midland Christian and Midland Classical, they all get to go to chapel all the time. And I said, so I'm not worried about that group of kids. I want you to worry about Midland High and Midland Lee. And, and the Midland Christian and Midland Classical people, I would tell their parents, look, the ministry, your kids are exposed to this all the time. These other kids aren't. So long story, I went and talked to the superintendent and said, what do you need? And it wasn't a bait and switch. I wasn't asking him what he needed so I could then go hand out Gideon Bibles. I said, what do you need? And that was back um, you'll remember this when they had about five or six suicides that all happened. Yeah, it was back a, yeah that was definitely a, like in one year. Yeah, it was like 11-12 or something yeah. like yeah. that. And I got a call from Ryder Warren. He said, doors are open. You guys go help us. After that, he asked me to do the 2012 bond election, which I thought we needed. Can you imagine where we'd be with our elementary schools right now? Quite frankly, mm -hmm. if we hadn't passed that. But 
then I began to watch what I think are two separate issues occur. And I think what I start started to watch has come to fruition now, which is we have an educational outcomes culture issue, which is the classroom teachers and all that. That's just unacceptable. But we also have a building issue that's unacceptable. It's not either or it's both. And, and I, I, I was a part of the committee that, um, was watching the school district put together this bond proposal. My only claim to fame in it is at the end, when they were finally deciding how big to make this bond, I said, I'll support it if you will put together a citizen's oversight committee that will be appointed when it's passed. And that was just my idea, I thought. And I learned it from looking at another city and how they were doing it. And I said, just appoint a committee that has no MISD employees, no elected officials, and they can see all the tax money in, how it's being spent, and they can report to the community every quarter how their bond money is being spent if it passes. But if, whether I'm for or against, and I'm going to vote for the bond, I've said it from the beginning. Uh, I said it before I ran for mayor, and I didn't change my tone because it might change a vote when I became mayor. But I can assure you that unless we have a full-on assault on how we're going to change the classroom— and the ways we try to change the classroom, then we're not going to see transition in that area that we're going to need to see. And it's going to take some creative, aggressive work to get those changes, which means some people that are going to need to run for school, uh, the school board, there's going to need to be some fundamental challenges probably in-house. And um, there's a lot of creative options out there. There really are. But it's just a matter of the will to do it. So as mayor, yeah. this is uh, who has no authority over education. Sure, but <laughs> I know, and but all these entities, you all have mm-hmm. to work together. Now I know nobody ever wants to go to a county commissioner's meeting. <laughs> Those are pretty crazy. So, but school board president, yeah. mayor, you know. But those are the well in in the old days the people called my mother called that those are the city fathers city fathers yes yes maybe you should call me pastor <laughs> <laughs> those are the city fathers so yes. the city fathers yes. had to be had to work a little mm-hmm. bit together right uh, how do you see that relationship with other um, well like we've got the sheriff's department I mean there's so many mm-hmm. entities running Midland right what is the does the mayor in your view have a role to play as the leader of those entities as well. Absolutely. I, I hesitate to say the mayor is the leader of all those entities, although one of us in one of these entities is going to have to stand up and say, okay, let's figure out a way to work together. I would hate to build a coalition like Priority Midland is building, and we think that the mayor is the uh, de facto king of the king of the team, but I think there has to be some leadership that helps the team get together and all start pushing towards one thing because it's going to be another fundamental change when we realize, okay, rather than this being a county issue or a city issue or a school issue or a hospital issue, how is that our issue and how are we going to fix that? And if you want to see a city that's done it amazingly well, just Google um, Maps Project in Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma City's on what they call Maps 4 now. And all the taxing entities developed a plan and they're do it debt free. They've turned schools around, they've turned downtown around. So remember the old saying we started this whole thing with is we're in the midst of a paradigm shift and that paradigm shift, the city getting larger and the county getting smaller because of annexation, the necessary needs of the hospital, the needs of the school district at some point coming together does not mean 
one entity delays their issue on the ballot. That is not synergy and coming up with better solutions. That's it's being talked about right now, how the school district has their bond this November, and then the hospital is going to have their issue in May. That is not what you do if you want to really come to better solutions. What you do is you come together and produce a holistic, different option that the city votes on and moves forward on. So I think the mayor, as long as he's willing to take that role, I'd be willing to take that role. I'd never have had a problem with irritating and agitating. And so... Um, wow, I was thinking more like supporting each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm reading this book right now called Leadership in Turbulent Times, and it's an awesome book. It's about LBJ, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, and and Theodore, Teddy, FDR, Abraham Lincoln, and LBJ. And I'm in the section right now where FDR is going through uh, the Depression. And there's this interesting paragraph I literally just read last night where he talks about how his whole mode of operation was he would get people to just start disagreeing in order to debate the issues. And he'd even reassign them to different teams. So they'd have to debate the issue from a different perspective because he didn't think you came to better answers unless you first went through disagreement. And I'm not sure... We, at a city leadership, city father level, understand the necessity of really hard debate that doesn't just say, I'm right, you're wrong. So I choose agitate. We can partner. Yeah. <laughs> I say, I'm city mother. I say support. <laughs> <laughs> the lady, when my kids were playing basketball, did you play basketball with First Methodist growing up uh, in no, their league? FBC. Was yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, because this lady, somebody in the stands yelled, compete. And how did she, she corrected him and she said something. Oh, he goes, be aggressive. And she says, no, we're assertive. And this was during a basketball game. That's funny. <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> okay, Michael, you can leave that one in. So is, this is like, if you have anything else you want to talk about, that's good. If not, well, we can finish no, I'm good. Thank you so much. I think we've had great conversation. And, okay. um, you know, I, I hope that uh, if those who are homebound have any issues whatsoever with voting, we tried to make that a little easier with the card we sent out to people. I hope they got mm -hmm. that. And if they didn't, if they'll let our campaign know, we'll try to help them as best we can. Sure. So how would they contact you? Just go to PeytonForMayor.com. And uh, if they have any access to fa Facebook, it's the same way. But PeytonForMayor.com uh, is the best place. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much You're for welcome. coming with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for joining us for Tall City Elections, a presentation of the League of Women Voters and the Recording Library of West Texas.